So welcome to today's panel discussion webinar. I'm Mark Graven from Kinexus. I'm going to be your host and moderator for this session that's titled How Lean and Continuous Improvement Helps You Get More Nimble and Adaptive in a Pandemic and Beyond. Let me a little bit more formally introduce our uh, panelists today. Dr. John Toussaint is an internist. He's a former healthcare CEO, and he's one of the foremost figures in the adoption of organizational excellence principles in healthcare. He founded Catalysis, a nonprofit education institute in 2008. And Catalysis um, has a number of networks and initiatives and products, including um, workshops, books, DVDs, webinars. Um, John has written three, well, this is now four books. He's written three books that all received the prestigious Shingo Research and Publication Award. He wrote On the Mend, Potent Medicine and Management on the Mend. And I'm gonna hold up his most recent book here called uh, Becoming the Change. And so this book is new and, and that's why it's not in that fourth um, Shingo list, but we, uh, we shall wait and see and I encourage people to go um, check that out. So John, thank you for, uh, thank you for being here today. Thanks. And we're also joined by Skip Stewart, who currently serves as Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare, which is headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. And Skip develops, directs, and implements performance improvement activities, identifying inefficiencies. He also implements strategies to improve quality, service, and finances, and fosters a culture of continuous improvement and excellence. Um, so Skip, thank you for being here. Thank you. And we're also joined by Dr. Greg Jacobson. He is uh, our CEO and a co-founder of Kinexus. Greg graduated from Washington University with a BS in biology. He attended Baylor College of Medicine and completed his residency in emergency medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where he stayed on as faculty. And that's how he learned about Kaizen and continuous improvement. Greg is uh, also still an active practicing ER physician who's fanatical about the single biggest barrier holding companies back from greatness, their lack of continuous improvement work. And so that took him down the path of developing and growing and leading Kinexus. So Greg, thank you also for being here today. Oh, you're muted, Greg. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Sure thing. So to get things started, you know, is the, the topic of the webinar is today, you know, talking about lean and continuous improvement, being more nimble, being more adaptive, you know, not just during pandemic times, but really any other time. So first question to throw out here is, you know, I think kind of starting with, um, you know, the proposition, I think it's maybe a fair generalization that people often equate lean with standardization. And, th and they might fear then that we get inflexibility as a result of focusing on standard work. So maybe John, um, to start with you and in your experience and what you see in other organizations, how does Lean actually help create agility and adaptiveness? Well, as we all know that have been in this world for a long time, uh, we can't improve anything until we have created a standard or standard work. And we, you know, we see that in clinical medicine all the time where we use placebo controlled double blind studies to determine what the evidence is for doing what we do, whether it's uh, you know uh, doing surgery or 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 you know uh, prescribing medication, but when it comes to management, there really are no uh, evidence-based activities, and so we have no standards. And because we have no standards, we can't improve anything. So 
that's why Lean has been so critical, I think, for so many organizations uh, really around the world. I just was on the phone with uh, one of the CEOs in Johannesburg, South Africa, saying if she hadn't had a lean management system, she probably would not have been able to survive the mess that, uh, that they've had over there. So I think the point is that when we create the standards, we can then improve those standards. And, and when we have standards and we have standard work, we can actually uh, spend our time thinking about the more difficult uh, problems. Uh, and I think that's what unleashes the creativity is, is the fact that we're not running around looking for things. We're not in a chaotic mode. We actually have a set of processes that work every single day. Uh, and it allows us to, to really think bigger, I guess, is the way I think of it, is, is, is think bigger about, okay, what are the problems that might happen that we need to be thinking about, like pandemic, you know? I mean, I think we could have all been much better prepared if we would have spent more time, uh, you know, utilizing our standard work for management and uh, thinking about, you know, what are the things that can really go wrong and, and, and trying to focus on those instead. Thanks, John. Uh, Skip, what, what are your thoughts about that lean and, and being more adaptive and nimble? You know, I think to build off what Dr. Toussaint was saying is that I think it unleashes a level of creativity and experimentation. As we have a standard outcome, we then have to come up with a standard method to produce that standard outcome. That normally, whatever we create at first is not going to work. And so we're going to have to experiment our way forward to have that standard method consistently day in and day out produce that standard method. And so we unleash experimentation, we unleash creativity. And to do that, there are a lot of parts and pieces that have to come to play. We show respect. We have to do that with humility. And I think it allows us to be able to study and adjust, study and adjust on a daily basis as we're striving to improve uh, patient care. Thanks, Skip. Um, Greg, what, what are your thoughts on, on this topic? I mean, I think it's an unfortunate association that's been created when people think of lean, their initial, I, I guess when, when people think about lean and they don't know much about lean, their initial uh, conclusion is, is that um, lean equals standard work and standard work equals, equals inflexibility. And I, I would argue that organizations that I've been in that are doing this well are are exactly the opposite, right? Um, organizations that don't subscribe to these practices are often say things like, well, that's just the way we do things here. And um, there, there's never a push or a agitation. I know that's a negative word, but I love the word. Um, there's never an agitation um, coming from leadership that says, hey, constantly think about the work that we're doing and think about how we're going to get better doing it. So in, in my mind, the the flexibility, the creativity that uh, humans have, uh, it flourishes when constraints are put on humans. I think we talked about this a little bit in the preview, if you had an opportunity to listen to that. And without any constraints, it's essentially, you know, you can think of it as art. Um, but imagine an artist that doesn't even have a discipline that, you know, from day, day to day goes from you know, watercolors, the sculpture, to poetry, to, you know, the, the, the constraint of the discipline is what creates oftentimes the beauty in, in, in and I think that humans excel ultimately 
when when that constraint is identified. And um, and I'm using the term constraint instead of the term standard work um, just to to kind of expand the concept um, outside of kind of business terms and, and look at it from a design perspective. But that's essentially what we're we're all doing, whether you're working in a hospital or you're you know working in a software company. You're you're designing a workflow. You're designing a process. You're designing a way to we all interact. You're designing the next step, and uh, you can't really become creative and figure out how to do it without defining that standard work. And then once you do, and then you take the next step to create a methodology that constantly affords uh, opportunity for people to question what what they're doing, for people to engage in improving that system, then all of a sudden you realize that what seemed inflexible is actually, uh, yeah, it's highly flexible. Um, and uh, th- th- that's probably a good place to end. I think we'll probably get into lots more aspects of this topic, seeing as how it is the title of right. our panel discussion. Yeah. So one, one follow-up question, I'll look for volunteers if any or all of you want to touch on this. So you're kind of building on the idea of structure or standards or constraints. What's your experience uh, you know, in terms of um, the benefits of having a structured approach to improvement? Does that structure help unleash creativity, whether um, we, we think of it as you know, small Kaizen or the structure of Toyota Kata or other, other frameworks? Well, I think there's some really good examples of uh, of how a structured framework has really helped organizations navigate uh, COVID. Uh, Mount Sinai and Morningside Hospital, for example, uh, when it was you know, really in the depths of, the, of this crisis, uh, basically they were asking their frontline workers to solve hundreds of different problems each day. And they did. And they came up with fantastic ideas that that managers and executives would have never thought of in a million years. Uh, they con- they converted in five days. They converted sixty rooms to ICU rooms that were outpatient GI rooms. That was all done by the staff, and it was just taking the ideas of those staff and having them run with it, and using PDSA cycles to determine whether or not it, you know it was working, and, and then quickly adjusting. So I think you know what we need to do is make sure that our management system actually supports this, uh, uh, as Skip says, this, this unleashing of the creativity, because these folks are, can be very creative if we give them the structure to allow that to happen. And in, in, and in most cases, the structure doesn't exist. So we need a management system that actually allows for people to rapidly identify and solve problems uh, at the front line, and 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 that's really what this method does is is is, is allows that um, that that tremendous uh, uh, resource that we all have to actually be utilized at the highest level of the uh, of the um, scope of license and of the scope of thinking. I think another thing, Mark, is that it's really counterintuitive, right? Uh, whether it be the improvement in coaching kata, or whether it be uh, the A3 format, the structure, uh, you know, actually opens up the creativity. 
it, it expands the creativity and it, and it is, it's very counterintuitive at first, but once you're into it, you actually see that that structure becomes a friend. And, and what's interesting is we don't tend to question a lot of structure in other aspects of life. You know, great athletes don't come to practice and just swing the bat any way they want and practice any way they want. And hopefully it all works out in the game day. They have a really structured way of practicing. And you'll see in game day where that athlete's creativity and true athletics will expand. So I would argue that it's counterintuitive sometimes. And, and Greg, maybe just to frame uh, a more specific question for you, thinking back when you first got introduced to Masaki Amai's work and books around mm-hmm. Kaizen, um, what were your thoughts as, as a resident about, um, about having structure for improvement? What, what, have you, what, what do you remember then or what have you learned over time? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think I've, I break all improvement work just into two simple categories. Um, so to me, there's bottom-up improvement work and there's top-down improvement work. And I think that they both have different flavors to them. So the bottom-up improvement work is improvement work that's initiated by someone on the front line. Um, oftentimes in lean, we refer to them as just do-its or OIs or OFIs and um, or maybe an identification of a defect and incident. Um, top-down improvement work is uh, maybe initiated from someone from the front line, but really goes through and gets up into a higher level in the organization because perhaps it's a bigger complex problem. And these might take the form of, of projects and uh, you know, larger PDSAs. There are larger A3s. There's typically going to be uh, multiple parts to them, and there's going to be multidisciplinary teams to them. So the, the bottom-up work, I think, is a, a very good example of if you have too much rigidity and too many steps and too many barriers to engage in that, uh, you're going to limit participation. And so when you're talking about a, kind of a frontline um, idea system or Kaizen-minded, I, I, I cringe at the word idea, even though I just said it, just an easy four-letter word. Um, a uh, opportunity for improvement system. And, and then, for example, you have 15 questions someone needs to ask to in order to, to submit that into the system. That's going to significantly decrease participation for, because um, we're all healthcare, you know, an ER doc who, who has a, a bunch of patients to see for them to you know, pull out their phone and then start answering all these questions. And it takes five and a half minutes to submit something. The participation is going to be super low. If you take that uh, same idea and flip it on its head and say, oh, well, you can do a multidisciplinary six-month project with 25 different resources and um, you know a $10,000 budget, and, and you don't have to answer 15 different questions, then you're probably going to be doing a, a lot of bad projects. Mm-hmm. And so I think you, you we certainly both are going to need some uh, a thought process. Um, but the 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 level of um, whether it's low cost, low risk, and, and now with the pandemic, how quickly is it needed? Because converting the rooms into ICU bed is certainly not low low cost or low risk. But the speed at which that has to happen, um, if it would have happened in a normal you know longer cycle, would have been irrelevant. I mean, it had it has to happen today, 
And so um, it's a good example of uh, maybe a bottom up kind of scenario or at least an implementation working that way. Um, I, I will say one last thing, just to touch on the prior question, because I know you reframed it in more specificity, but a lot of folks that are, are healthcare, and I don't know what the, the, the mix is here, will recognize the uh, method in which physicians um, or practitioners, all practitioners will kind of go through their, their process, the, what's your chief complaint, what's your history of present illness, um, the review of systems, then your past medical history, your past surgical history, your social history, your physical exam, starting with your vital signs, then going through the physical exam, you know, head to toe, then coming up with your, your differential diagnosis, and then coming up with your plan to test that. Um, there's a very specific reason why it it is framed in that order and why, like Skip said, you don't just say, oh, we'll go figure out what's going on in, in room four and and and, and you don't learn that process. So a lot of times a process uh, has the, the order in which thoughts need to occur for you to come up with um, the best answer that you could come up with at the time. And so um, certainly um, different improvement activities are going to have different levels of rigidity and they are going to be very important. Um, um, to to follow in order to get the highest quality improvement work that is going to you know, be able to come out of that individual person or that group of people. Yeah. Okay. Um, and a reminder for the audience, please do submit questions in the Q&A box. And if you pull up that Q&A box, if there are questions that um, you want to upvote, click the, uh, the thumbs up arrow. That'll help um, accomplish that and bubble up um, questions that um, have the most interest. Um, but before we do that, you know, maybe kind of shift from kind of general thoughts on on lean and uh, adaptiveness, and maybe talk about here during pandemic times. Um, so, Skip, maybe we'll start with you and and what Baptist has done during the pandemic to to use lean and um, uh, you know, related strategies to to be more nimble and um, to help battle these challenges. You know what what we have seen uh, during the pandemic. Uh, our, our Baptist management system, what some people would call lean, or um, is based on 11 guiding principles. And we believe that behaviors come out of those principles and it's connected to our overall work. And we've seen those principles uh, live out and we've seen the Baptist management system manifest itself. So we have spent many years uh, investing in to a scientific thinking process that we call the improvement kata, coaching kata. Uh, other things like TWI and so forth. And the thing that shocked me a little bit when the pandemic hit was how many phone calls from mid-March through mid-July I received or text or emails that said, thank you so much for the Baptist management system. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to uh, not have it. And so I, I dug into that a little bit. I wanted to understand spe specifically, what do you mean? And what always came back was two things. One was, yes, thank you for our scientific way of thinking with Kata. It's very normal and natural for people to say, let's go run an experiment or let's experiment with that. So that became more of their natural versus what tends to be most humans natural is to jump to conclusions. But the thing that probably surprised me the most 
that was the most encouraging was there was this overwhelming response of people saying, thank you for uh, TWI job relations, which for those that understand what training within industry is, there's three legs to the stool, job instructions, job relations, and job methods. And job in relations is how do we deal with people? How do we get people to follow our leadership? And when that doesn't occur and there might be a people problem, how do we deal with that in a structured, respectful way versus responding emotionally? And we've seen a tremendous amount of feedback from that. And the, and the other thing we've seen during this pandemic was we've seen our leaders um, live out some of these principles of humility and of trust and empathy. We've seen our CEO and uh, my boss, the COO, you know, doing rounds uh, with nurses all day long, dressed out in all of the, the medical gear so that they could walk a day in their shoes. Uh, we saw things like no layoffs. We uh, raised a tremendous amount of funds to provide people that needed economic and financial help. Uh, the thing that also surprised us was that our employee engagement scores went through the roof. Uh, when everyone else's were going down, Press Ganey told us, ours, they couldn't explain why they were going so high. Uh, and so I could keep on going, but I think a lot of that is based on a principle-minded uh, management system. And so it's given people the permission to experiment. And, uh, and I remember like one of the very first days, and I'll stop with this story. I had a physician call me on a Saturday and said, Skip, I think that the, the test line where they're doing the nasal test for the COVID, I'm not so sure it's being done correct. And I said, well, okay, so tell me more. And we talked about that. And she really wasn't calling for my help. I think she was just calling to be a sound. She said, I'm going to go create a job instruction breakdown on exactly how that's done. And uh, But it's, since it's just an experiment, I'll go road test it and I'll call you back and tell you how it went. And by Monday, that was a Saturday, by Monday, that job instruction breakdown had went through many iterations and then it was being spread to our 22 hospitals within a couple of days of it being created. So that's just an example, I think, of what we've seen so far. Thanks, Skip. Uh, John, you, you've mentioned um, a couple of organizations already. You talk to and work with uh, a lot of organizations. What are some other examples that you would want to share about some of the good work that's been done during the pandemic? I mean, there's so many. It's hard to it's hard to choose. Uh, the, the, the Torrance Memorial uh, folks out in California. You know, instead of furloughing people, they basically took the 500 idled staff and they had them build PPE. Um, they built shields, they built, um, you know, wipes, they did all kinds of things like that. Uh, in addition, they were redeployed to, uh, you know, the entrances to, 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 you know, take temperatures and do things. So, um, UMass Memorial, same thing. They, they, they said, we're not going to lay anybody off. We're not going to furlough anybody. We're going to redeploy to uh, areas that we need. I mean, th th you know, this is the ultimate respect. And, uh, you know, I think there's, there's two things that have emerged from these types of uh, places. One is that respect for people, uh, uh, an important principle, 
when you really respect people, you don't lay them off. When you really respect people, you make sure that they're safe, that they have what they need to do their work. Um, you, you create that environment. And, and organizations that have really been focused on the method of organizational excellence with principles and behaviors and systems uh, have, have done some just amazing things. I'll, I'll mention one more. Christie Clinic, uh, you know, they did early on some, some radical changes instead of you know, mixing patients together that might be infected versus ones that weren't because, you know, the uninfected ones didn't want to come to the clinic. So what did they do? They created the, uh, a, a, a place where you, they actually examined the patients in the car. You drive up to the carport, examine the patients in the car, you know, you determine whether or not they need to be, you know, uh, sent to the emergency room or whether they can be managed to, you know, in less, less uh, uh, aggressive uh, uh, environments. But I mean, you know, it's, it's this kind of creativity, right? It's like, why do we have to come, have them come to the clinic? We don't need to do that. They also reduced the time from a, a patient to, uh, that, that came to the clinic, went from the registration process, the wait time, all that kind of stuff down to less than two minutes. Uh, so it was really just in time um, examinations for folks that, that did need to see the clinic. So I, there's just dozens of these examples in great organizations. Uh, I love the ones that Skip mentioned. I mean, that's what's so terrific about the method is that, you know, when you really are principle-based, then you focus on the people that work for you and you make sure they're safe and you make sure that they're taken care of, whether it's economically, um, you know, no layoffs, those sorts of things. And, and the places that don't have those principles are just the opposite. Um, so, Greg, to kick it over to you, um, you know, a couple of thought starters, you know, for one, Kinexus works with um, a lot of customers and Kinexus as a company has also faced the challenge of um, adapting um, to pandemic times. So as, as CEO um, of, of Kinexus, what thoughts come to mind about successfully dealing with sure. the pandemic? So there's, there's three areas I'll, I'll briefly touch on. One, what we did at Kinexus. So uh, for one, uh, I think I probably mentioned to you in the past, Mark, that when the NBA canceled season, that was when the reality kind of hit me that that we were dealing with something um, different than we had ever dealt with before. And when my, I, I was going to say passion, but really it's obsession with uh, learning about the pandemic and, and all things related to it started, we immediately went remote. It was a very easy decision for us. We felt like... Uh, Kinexus as a company was not going to be a remote company. We always felt that there was a, a need to go in the office, but the sacrifice of coming in the office um, didn't make any sense at that point. Um, we also made a commitment to everybody that, and, and I'll, I'll never forget when Jeff, our, our CRO, described it to everybody. His visual is a little uh, perplexing, but he said, we're not throwing anyone off the boat. We're all going to cut our left arm off before anyone gets thrown off the boat. And so he basically just explained, you know, we're all taking pay cuts. No one's going to get fired. Um, and so uh, I, I think that 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 transparency, we've been extremely transparent with all of our numbers uh, being a startup um, with everybody. So they know that that their their job is secure. And um 
so there were things like that. The the things that really warm my heart a, a ton as well are just seeing our customers, especially healthcare customers, utilizing Kinexus to help with pandemic efforts. They're sure there's um, improvements and projects that are going in um, that we're helping to facilitate. But uh, the one that comes to mind was uh, Mike McGowan showing us um, from uh, Marietta Memorial showing us his COVID um, response board where they were huddling, uh, virtually huddling around a board that gave all the pertinent metrics and information um, related to the COVID response going in at that hospital. So, so that was a lot of um, a lot of fun to kind of see how we're influencing. What's What's interesting is that even outside of healthcare, we we had very few organizations that weren't doing something related to the pandemic um, with regard to their improvement work, and it was very clear the people that had. Uh, the best improvement cultures uh, responded to this uh, the best because at the foundation of lean is adaptability. If you, I'll just just visualize this, uh, give you a, a 30 second visualization. If, if a company just stops in their innovation and in their adaptability, um, they die, right? And whether it takes them five years or 10 years or 20 years, they're going to die because um, the world is changing, right? So you just you can think about any, I mean, they, they have these statistics that the, the Fortune 500 companies in 20 years, like 80% of them flip over. And so the companies that, that, that do well in general um, are, are able to adapt to uh, the situation. Now, um, companies that in their DNA have built in adaptability, have built in what's, how do we create value to a customer are gonna be able to do that much quicker. So it's essentially what we had was in, in the last seven months, we had you know, 30 years of business change that, that got compressed into six months, seven months. And so you can imagine that the, the organization that had been practicing that well um, are going to be able to do that at a hyper rate. And um, and then I, I want to talk about one thing because the the story that, that Skip mentioned about the physician that noticed that the um, the swabs were done incorrectly is I, I was just reminded of uh, Daniel Pink's book Drive. Um, I I I love talking to people about non lean books that are important in lean. Hopefully, we have an opportunity to talk about habits and building habits at one point. But um, Daniel Pink's book, Drive, I think, is uh, if you are an improvement leader or an improvement-minded person just in general, this is a, a really important book. And, and, and he builds up the, the concept that intrinsic motivation is, um, is founded with autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And, and in that story, there was it was very clear that she had autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, she knew how the swab should be done. And um, she was uh, obviously felt autonomous. Uh, she just kind of ran up by saying, hey, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. And then of course, purpose is to, is to, to do the, their, their job well as physicians. And so um, having a deep understanding of intrinsic motivation is critical in continuous improvement and improvement work in general, because you cannot develop a culture of continuous improvement if you think that you're going to do this with external motivation tactics. There are times when external motivation tactics are important. Um, improvement work is not one of those times. And so um, that's a, if you haven't read it, it should be your next book. Yeah. I have no financial <laughs> connection. Yeah, book, yeah. Daniel Pink, uh, Drive. 
Um, so normally we do announcements about future webinars at the end, but when we do a panel, we tend okay. we, we do those in the middle. So we're going to take just a, a okay. brief intermission, make a couple of announcements about upcoming webinars and other events. And uh, again, uh, I was remiss in mentioning um, our friends at Lean Frontiers who were uh, partners in um, putting together and um, promoting uh, today's webinar. So you can check them out at leanfrontiers.com. Our upcoming webinars, if you are a Kinexus customer, our next training team office hours is going to be on October 1st. Um, I don't know why that says October. I, I'm not really a beer drinker. I wasn't looking ahead to Oktoberfest, but um, defect-ridden uh, work on my part. Sorry. Um, but that will be with Adam Darnell and Matt Banna um, for Kinexus customers only open to everybody like today's webinar and our um, series um, this is going to be presented by Scott Bergmeier from uh, he's executive director of IQC. He's going to be giving a, a presentation about six key steps to create a culture of improvement. So you can register for any of those um, right now at kinexus.com slash webinars. Um, today's session is being recorded and it will be available in our webinar on-demand library um, with what, seven or eight years of recorded webinar content. Uh, we invite you to check that out. Um, you can also visit our blog at blog.kinexus.com and the audio of today's panel, if you want to revisit anything or if you joined late or you want to share with others, will also be available um, through our podcast, which you can find um, basically anywhere that you find or listen to podcasts. So, um, and, and a reminder for, for people, you can, um, we're, we're gonna focus um, in a minute on audience questions and you can submit questions or upvote other questions. Uh, but John, I, I wanna come to a topic that um, we, we've talked a little bit about during the pandemic. Um, a couple of times the Wall Street Journal has written articles blaming lean for shortages of paper towels or shortages of PPE. And, and they seem to make the mistake of equating lean with low inventory as opposed to equating lean with adaptability. You know, there was an article I saw recently where Akio Toyota, the CEO of Toyota, was saying really the key thing that they do is reducing lead times, which leads to adaptability in a different way that low inventory um, could not. So, so John, what, what are your thoughts on all this? I know that most recent article caught your attention. Yeah, I think that that most of these uh, reporters are sort of missing the they, they they don't have the understanding of 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 how lean thinking actually helps you helps leaders and 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 people um, get through these sorts of crises. So they they you know they tend to blame you know just in time and all this kind of stuff as the reason that we. Um, are in such deep trouble. And uh, of course, it's just not true. I mean, the, the examples that we've already heard, um, you know, from my experience, Skip's experience, Greg's experience, are that when you have a uh, effective management system based on principles, you actually can make decisions very quickly because you're relying on the, on the, on the brains of the people that do the work to fix the problems. Um, we're never going to fix uh, the, you know, no, none of us could have fixed the supply chain issue related to the fact that 
almost all of the PPE was being produced in, a, in another world, another country. Uh, we weren't going to fix that. Okay, now, is it a problem that needs to be addressed? Yes, it is. But what we could do, like I said, what Torrance Memorial did was we got creative and we made our own PPE and we figured out how to, you know, Duke Health figured out how to use hydrogen peroxide uh, cleaning to, 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 to um, you know, uh, for their face masks so they, you know, could reuse them, right? So, I mean, th th these are the ideas that come out of organizations that rely on their people to solve problems. And there's always going to be somebody shooting, you know, uh, at lean thinking. There always has been. There always will be. But the reality is that the, what what happened and what's happening is that uh, organizations that have been that do have lean management systems have fared much better than ones that don't. And are there some structural issues that we need to deal with? I mean, the fact that you know PPE was was manufactured in you know, across the ocean somewhere, that's not lean thinking. Uh, you know? That's not shortening lead times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not lean thinking to do that. And and when you when you look at org companies that actually use lean thinking, they have a completely different way to manage um, supply chain, and they certainly don't have just one you know vendor that that's doing it. So so the the, the problems that have been you know, focused on in these articles uh, really have, ironically, are, are just the opposite of lean thinking problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's that's the thing is that, you know, we, we just need to continue to educate. We need to continue to explain, you know, when when we're looking at extended value stream, what does that really mean? And, and frankly, organizations that look at the world that way have fared a heck of a lot better than ones that, you know, just w wait for the CFO to get a unit cost down. Um, so we thank you for that, John. I, I hope uh, the journal publishes your uh, your letter that you sent them, part of your education efforts to them. Thank you for that. Um, we have a question here from Michelle, and, and maybe Skip will point this at you first because you talked about um, TWI and other standard work approaches. What are recommendations, or what are things that leaders can do to hold people accountable for performing to the documented standard work? You know, I think the first thing uh, we have to do is make sure we understand that word accountability and that we don't weaponize it and use it as a way to uh, uh, show disrespect to people. So, you know, if we're going to talk about accountability, uh, many times I'll ask folks, okay, fine, what are we going to hold someone accountable to? So if there is no standard for the outcome that I want on a process and there is no standard for the method to produce that outcome, what am I going to hold them accountable to? And I say it that way because you find that more often than not. You find that there is no standard for the outcome. So when there is no standard for the outcome, whatever they're doing is probably good enough in their mind. And by default, whatever process they're using is probably good enough. If there is a standard for the outcome that they want, but there isn't a standard for the method to produce that outcome, then we're asking our people to, uh, to guess. Or as Mr. Kato in Japan told me a year ago, you've chosen to neglect your people, which I thought was harsh, but I thought, I thought he made a good point. So I think that 
Now, if we say, no, we want that, then if we're working with the real people that do the real work and they're participating in the standard, in creating the standard outcome and the standard method to produce that outcome, then the accountability doesn't become that difficult, except to build on what Dr. Jacobson said earlier, Um, You might have to think about the habits and the routines that you want to follow, uh, to follow up, to condition that behavior, because I think if you do develop that standard and then you never follow up with it to confirm if people are following it or if they're struggling it because they can't follow it or whatever, that, then I think that shows disrespect too. Um, And I think we've all seen that. So I guess to answer the question mark is I would first start with, when we talk about accountability, what are we talking about? Accountability to what mm-hmm. is, is maybe where I would first frame that. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. If there's not clearly defined or understood standard work, how do you evaluate against that? And I remember one of my mentors um, teaching me, uh, you know, to, to look into like, uh, is it, is it that somebody won't follow the standard work or can't follow the standard work? For some reason, and that becomes a system issue if if they can't follow it the way it's documented, right? Well, and just if it's if I can make one more comment on that, that's where um, TWI job relations comes into also. How do I lead the person to follow it, assuming that everything's in place? Uh, by def, you know, JR job relations teaches that leaders have followers. You, know, you could be a boss and have hundreds of people reporting to you. That doesn't mean they're following you. And so job relations says, okay, I've got a standard here. I've got some job instructions to create a new behavior, but how do I motivate the person to follow it? And how do I lead them to follow it? And how do I get them to participate since they, since they know more about the work than I do because they're the ones doing it 10, 12 hours a day? John or Greg, any thoughts on that question about, um, you know, leading, managing, coaching to standards? I think Skip said it really well. I, I like the word responsible, responsibility to each other mm-hmm. a lot better than accountability, because if we have a responsibility to each other and we've defined what that standard is, uh, whether it's outcome or process, um, then we can hold each other accountable. And um, but but it's it's that it's it's really a responsibility to each other that we are going to, you know, do work in a certain way. Uh, and until you define what that work is to Skip's point, you know, it's the wild, wild west. It's chaos. Yeah. Um, and it was a related question or comment uh, from Edward. Um, Skip, I think you touched on it a little bit. If you could talk about the common confusion between work standards and standard work. It's not just a a flip of the words, right? Well, that's a great question. Uh, You know, uh, I I got a dissertation a year ago in Japan, and I'm still trying to get my mind unwrapped from that. You know, work, you know, standardized work, to use that term, how uh, Mr. Kato said that Toyota looks at it, is it's the full package, and meaning that, I have a standard outcome, I have a standard method, and in that standard method, I have the the order and the rate 
And we're going to start getting into words like tack time and things of that nature to produce that standard uh, method. But one way to think about these, to, to, to use it simple, is what's my standard outcome that I want? So let me, if I can give an example, if that's okay. I was working with a testing line where we radically improved how long it took a person to drive up to get a test. And I asked the executive, what was the standard outcome that he wanted? He said, well, I want quality and I want people to efficiently go through. And, and he used very vague language. And so respectfully, I said, I'm not really sure I understand any of that. Um, how fast do you want it? How quick do you want people registered? Let's be specific on the quality. So we spent some time and we started articulating exactly what did the outcome uh, as the customer, what do we want? What exactly do we want? Whether those be a time, whether they be quality, whether they be whatever the metric may be. Once we had that, we then started saying, well, what standard method will produce that outcome? And at first he said, just do this, this, and this. And we did that and it did not work. And so we had to we had to experiment with creating the standard methods to produce that standard outcome. So work standards tend to be typically uh, the way I think about it is work standards typically are the methods to produce the standard outcome. Standardized work is the full package of from from the process to the end product and all along. Thanks, Skip. There's a related question, and maybe you know, to Greg, and then um, John is physicians. That um, Mustafa asked. There was some reference given to um, the similarity between evidence-based medicine and standard work of management. What are your thoughts on when we when there's not agreement on some of the evidence-based medicine standards? Yeah. Why is that? Do or how, how do you resolve that? They they should just do whatever I think. Then if that's the case. Uh, uh, sorry, I guess that was not funny. Whatever I think, they um, think, or whatever from, they think individually. No. Yeah, no, whatever, whatever I think, they should just come to me. No. Um, so certainly, I think there is there. there I, I so I'm going to take it from the standpoint of order sets because I, I think that's where this question is um, coming down from. So I think that that. Uh, Certainly, there are there are established, uh, you know, nuggets of knowledge that is it's very clear um, what the answer is. I, I don't know. I'm just going to make one up. Uh, if you have a bacterial pneumonia, I think everyone agree you need an antibiotic. Um, now you get into more nuance to well, you know, which antibiotic is the right antibiotic. And so, to me, I think that the that order sets that don't allow flexibility and don't allow people to deviate um, from them, uh, oftentimes create, um, you know, animosity to them. Um, and so in, in my experience, the ones that work really well are the ones that are reminding you of things that you may forget about on a, on an average, on an average day, like for example, smoking cessation. I'm, I'm trying to go back to my internal medicine rotation days. 
But, um, you know, someone that gets a minute for pneumonia that smokes, you know, needs to get smoking cessation. That's not front of mind for a lot of people. But if it's all of a sudden on order set, it makes it really simple to make that decision, right? That's kind of designing things. And uh, most of the order sets that I've seen um, will allow you to deviate from them. And you can just put whatever reason you want to, I don't like that antibiotic, or I, I think this paper is right, or this paper is wrong. And so um, I, I, in my mind, uh, there, there, there needs to be that flexibility for people to interpret the, the science um, in the way that they want. I think if some things are really well established, there probably should be a little bit more of a, a barrier and a threshold to deviate from those. And I think one of the beauties of an EMR, and, and maybe John, you could you talk a little bit about this, but once you have all the data and you have big data, you can start to see, oh, well, Greg deviates from this. What, what are the outcomes of his patients? And maybe he's, maybe he's right or, or, or maybe he's wrong. And um, once you start having the ability to, to look at that, you have the ability to give that feedback. Perhaps it's the order set that needs to be changed. Perhaps it's, you know, Greg's practice that needs to be changed. But that's that, that's the kind of the, the my thought process. And this is my approach when I've seen really well done order sets uh, done. John, do you want to? Uh, yeah, I was going to just interject Mustafa typed that he thought the joke was funny, Greg. So you're off the hook. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I Sorry, appreciate John, it. Go ahead. <laughs> I, uh, I think this is a bit of a sticky wicket. Um, and, and the, the reason is that, you know, if you look at evidence-based medicine, there's probably only 30% of what we do that, that's, that's fully, you know, solidly based in, in evidence. Yeah. So that means there's 70% that isn't. So the question is, what do we do with that? You know, to Greg's point, I mean, is it just you versus me, my way versus your way? I think, and this is what, you know, we, we did when, when I was CEO is I think we needed you need to take a stance. You need to create stand, standard work, even if you don't have evidence, because you're not going to know whether something is working until you have standard work for it. And if you've got five physicians and they're all doing something different, then you've got chaos. So what we tried to do in our hospitalist program was a good example was where we didn't have evidence, we actually uh, built consensus among the physicians around the standard work that we were going to use for that particular problem. And then we could study it and improve it. And I think that, that, you know, clinicians then just do, they, they sort of go back to, well, I'm a doctor. I can do whatever the heck I want. That's not the right thing. What we should do is have the doctors come together to say, what is the most likely thing that will work here, knowing that we don't have the evidence. And then we should study that. Again, it's no different. PDSA, we've got to study and adjust. We study the clinical standard work that we've created, and if it's not working, then we adjust it. But to just you know throw it up and say, you know, you're a doctor, you went through all these years of school. I mean, go ahead and do what you want. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the right thing to do because that's that's fundamentally not what continuous improvement is. Uh, it's not about my way versus your way. It's about a way, and if we can establish a way then we can start to study whether that way actually works or not. And I think with the electronic health record, we have a much, a much simpler uh, way to really know whether things are working much faster. It's much cleaner. Uh, so we can do these, these mini clinical studies, so to speak. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's come out of the pandemic has been based on observational data. 
you know, I mean, uh, the, the whole anticoagulation thing came out of, of observational data. And it was these studies, you know, that, okay, we're going to put these patients into this category and we're going to treat them with heparin and we're going to see how they do because we didn't have any evidence. Um, so I think it's really important to, to decide what way you're going to go when you don't have evidence. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to the, the website you showed me uh, in the preview? Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, Epic Healthcare Research um, Network is Epic has put together a uh, a a website which is now pouring in uh, uh, tens of millions of patients de-identified data, and what it is, it's observational data on clinical um, clinical issues. So what what's coming out of that then are, are studies that we publish every week or, or so about, you know, what are we learning, you know, immediately, not waiting for three years for, a, for a something to be published in the New England Journal, but here's observational data. And actually the anticoagulation uh, activity came out of that observational database back in, in, in middle of March. Uh, Lee, Lee uh, Memorial and, or uh, Lee Health System in, in Fort Myers was one of the first ones to identify that. So you can go to the Epic Research Network um, website, and if you have data that you want to, uh, you know, put in there, uh, we've, there's there's tens of millions of patients' uh, information now, COVID patients' information in there, and it's fascinating what's coming out of this observational database. And you know, until we have placebo-controlled double-blind studies, that's all we've got. But at least it's a way, right? So this this research is pointing us to a way. And that's what—that's the way we should be thinking about these th- these emerging concepts on clinical treatment. Yeah. And I think utilizing the electronic medical record, while it's not blinded and not placebo controlled, if it's done well, you you really can look at group A versus group B on areas of differentiation, and then be able to study that. So, I think I think you probably. And from your from your level of experience of uh, being a CEO of a hospital, have have been in those kind of heated discussion rooms, developing consensus. Me being on the uh, on the front line side of it, you know, where I'm kind of getting these, I, I welcome them because they do remind me of a whole bunch of things that I wasn't thinking about um, on my patient. And um, I've never been one to be too dogmatic about much in general. So. Um, getting, you know, the ID docs recommendation on what to do here or the pulmonology docs recommendation on what to do there. Um, to me, just, I feel like it, it makes me a better physician, mm-hmm. but, um, to, to, to really take advantage of, of the EMR and I'm blanking on, there was a, an anesthesiologist I, I, I met that is doing this. Um, he's doing a startup um, his last name was Low. I apologize. I can't remember um, the, the company's oh, name, but they were uh, really Dan, just Daniel Low. Dan Low, yeah. Dan Lowe. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And and they were kind of connecting into the EMR and, and able to run run charts and, and compare, you know, how did this anesthesiologist compare to that anesthesiologist? And that's that's next level. Um, and if you can show to, um, I think they showed me an example of, hey, this ENT gets people out of the post-op in, in five hours, and this one gets it out in 10 hours, and what is this one doing different than that one? I, just 99 out of 100 doctors are going to go, oh, I want to do some of that. That five hours is way better than 10 hours. I mean, we're all 
highly competitive and, uh, you know, want to be first in everything. So, um, kind of, we've, we've always been in the dark, um, until now we have, we have an, an EMR that if it's well designed and, and, and well, uh, easily accessible, we can start answering some pretty amazing questions. Yeah. Dan is at uh, Seattle Children's, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, maybe we have time for one more question. It's a meaty topic, but maybe, you know, we kind of go round robin a minute each. Faisal asks, when he hears the panel, makes me wonder if continuous improvement and lean equals daily discipline equals culture. What are your thoughts or reactions to that? Greg's nodding his head and his laptop shaking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just go first because I mean, I think you just... Um, you know, hit it, hit it spot on. I mean, everyone says, oh, well, we want a culture of continuous improvement or we want, you know, to have a culture of lean. Well, that's, that means nothing other than it's just a collection of a bunch of people's behaviors. And um, if you get a whole bunch of people's behaviors to be aligned, that is what a culture is. I mean, Seth Godin says the best and people like us do things like this. And that is, that is his definition of culture. And that's exactly what this is. And then the only way to do repetitive behavior, which is the only, you can't practice lean on Monday and then forget about it is to create habits. And so it'll just, it'll allow me to to plug two books that I think profoundly changed my view on habits. Um, One, the power of habits by Duhigg and two atomic habits by clear. Um, You, you really start understanding um, how do you develop cues, routines, and and get the benefit of it? How do you how do you change your behaviors? Um, just maybe those should be your next two books, but th- those should definitely be your next three books. So to me, that's that's um, completely spot on. And um, uh, Mark, I just I want thirty seconds at one point to talk about um, letters to humans. So please per- we'll, permit me to do that after after we'll, John and Skip. We'll, we'll do that at the end. Thanks, um, Skip. Real real Perfect. quick. Lean equals daily discipline equals culture. Uh, yes. So uh, you know, I think that uh, Dr. Jacobson said right. I would plug a third book called Tiny Habits. Uh, that's very powerful. And I think we're all a product of our habits. The question is, are those the habits that we want? And so uh, you know, our, if we walk into an organization, what kind of behaviors and habits do we see? What kinds do we want? And are there principles informing those behaviors and habits? And uh, I think then you start to uh, see the culture that we all strive for. We wrote this book because it's all about habits. And that's what it's about. This is a social technical system. But without the habits, the social side, the technical side doesn't survive. Yep. Southbrook is, uh, of course, again, that's uh, Becoming the Change. Um, John and Kim Barnes from Catalysis wrote that. Um, as we wrap up here, I want to thank everyone for attending. Greg, I will give you your, your 30 seconds. Um, I want to thank Lean Frontiers for helping us out um, in organizing the panel today. Um, Skip, I want to thank you for joining us, as always. Uh, it's good to talk to you. And Greg, thank you. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you mention your uh, information you have to share. So I, I, I just want to point people to a, a side project that I've become very passionate about. Thank you, John. Um, and uh, I started writing letters to my friends and family at the very beginning of this. And 
uh, of the very beginning of the pandemic, and it, it it has grown into something that I think a lot of people find very meaningful. And recently, I put it all on a website called letters2humans.com, where I attempt to scrub and they get the best data um, from the pandemic side of things, from the medical side of things, and write it to a non-medical, non-scientific um, audience. And uh, they now come out once a week. And uh, I know John mentioned it in, in our preview, um, the non-reported portion of the preview. He was very appreciative and have been forwarding it. So please check it out. Letters, L-E-T-T-E-R-S-T-O-H-U-M-A-N-S.com and uh, subscribe. I will never market to you. I only want your email address. I don't even want your first or last name, but I'm just trying to help people uh, distill and synthesize the information that's coming out there. All right. And, and speaking of, and thank you for that, Greg, and speaking of synthesizing information, um, a couple people asked, let's do a quick recap of the books that were mentioned today. So I've got Tiny Habits. I've got John's book. I've got Drive by Dan Pink. What else am I not remembering? Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. Was it Atomic Habits, not Tiny Habits? or did both? Well, there's, a, there's Tiny oh. Habits, there's Atomic Habits, and then there is, um, help me, Dr. Jacobson, uh, um, uh, power of habit. Power of habits. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to write a book called Nano Habits, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> power of habits, a great book. Um, if anything else comes back to mind, shoot me an email and um, I'll make sure that goes out in the email tomorrow with the link to the recording and other information. So um, that with that, we're a couple minutes over and I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, Greg, John, thank you. Oh, John needs to yeah. final... I don't think John had an opportunity to say something. Oh, he's taking off. Okay, I thought that was what he was saying. Perfect. So most webinars end not with a bang, but with a whimper. No, we'll kind of fade <laughs> off here. But um, thank you, everybody, for attending and participating or watching, listening to the recording. We're getting uh, a lot of thank yous. And uh, again, to those who asked about the books, those will be in the follow-up email that you'll get tomorrow. Um, Skip, why don't you mention real quick for the people who are still on, you have a great book. What Remind us the title of that. Yeah, it's called Creating an Effective Management System. Uh, Patrick Gropp from the TWI Institute, uh, myself and Brad Parsons, one of the CEOs of our Memphis hospital, uh, wrote that about a year ago, just to kind of really just to work out our thoughts. So called uh, Creating an Effective Management System. And um, again, Greg's website, thank you, Skip, is leanforhumans.com. So um, hopefully we will see everyone in future webinars. You can register at kinexus.com slash webinars. So thank you again. We'll see you, Kai, next time. Thanks. Thank you. See you, Kai, next time. Thanks, everyone.